Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode number 24 of the Crushing It in Construction podcast. My name's Jordan Skinner. I'm your host, and this week I'm chatting with Simon Gorman from Reeves and Vico. And in this episode, we're talking about taking on international work, something Simon and his team pretty much did straight out of the gate when they started the company. Now, in my head, I mean, taking on international work sounds like a mammoth task. Um, Running a business is hard enough, let alone throwing into the mix things like different languages, different time zones, and different currencies. So I wanted to get Simon on the show to firstly talk to him about his experiences with building the company, but he also shares with us his insights as to how to even go about taking on international work, and he also shares with us some of the pitfalls that people should be looking out for if they venture down this path. Simon's a really interesting guy. I really enjoyed having this chat with him. I think there's a lot to learn. So let's get into the show. G'day, Simon. Thanks for coming on the podcast today, mate. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Jordan. Pleased to be here. So for everybody that doesn't know you yet, they get to know you a bit better by the end of this episode, but could you just tell us who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, I'm Simon Gorman. I'm the managing director of uh, Reeves Invico, which is a group of companies that one that does uh, environmental and wastewater and water treatment plants across Australia and internationally and Reeves International, which has been doing primarily development-related infrastructure across the Pacific and Asia for the last 40 years. Yeah, so tell us, how did you originally get into the industry? Oh, look, I've had a pretty varied background. I worked first up to with Leighton's in Asia, in Hong Kong, straight out of uni, and I, went, I did a building degree in, at Melbourne Uni and then went straight out to Asia, and then wandered around the world doing stuff. I did some infrastructure and then general program management of a project in Somalia during the civil war in Somalia. And then I went to Rwanda and uh, just post-genocide, did some infrastructure and project management there for two and a half years. Um, wow. I think which really sort of piped my interest in international work. And yeah. so I, um, you know, since then, I've been engaged in the building industry since then, but focusing on international work for much of that time. Yeah. So when you actually first started in the industry, I'm always curious to know, what, what was your first job? Obviously, you didn't start at the top. So where did you actually start? Yeah, I had a year out, which is your grad year, I think they call it in the building degree. And I went to Hong Kong and I worked on the City Polytechnic, which was a sort of then a, an extremely large university, even in Hong Kong's terms, as a site engineer. And uh, for a 24-year-old kid in, in Asia, had one of the best times ever. Yeah, so... Just walk us through it. So you worked for other companies for a fair while, and then you decided that you were going to start this arm of Reeves in Vico. What was it that made you decide that you wanted to go on your own? Oh, look, it primarily came about, I was working with a fantastic fella who ran a company in Melbourne, and uh, he got very sick, which meant that he needed to sell his, you know, sell his business or move on from his business. And that was an obvious time for us to start looking, and I did it with another partner. Um, it's an obvious time for us to start looking at setting up our own company and having a go at some stuff. And so we did some water. I, I had a fair bit of experience um, in the water industry. And so we concentrated on that, but also almost immediately one work with Reeves uh, doing stuff out in Vanuatu. Yeah. So what was that time like when you finally decided that, yep, you were going to you know, go at it your own? I mean, there had to be some nerves and butterflies in, in, in the bottom of your stomach. I'm not sure there was nerves and butterflies. I think it was just the right time, you know. So, you know, I'd been a general manager 
of construction businesses for a while. So it wasn't like I was stepping out to set up a new business that you know had no background in it. So um, I had less butterflies, but it was more about trying to secure work and not grow too big and get the right people around you. That was an interesting sort of time, I suppose. But but as far as it being a daunting exercise, it really wasn't. Um, but it was more, it was probably exciting, really. So, and, and you said you had a business partner. How did that partnership come about? Ah, uh, he was, when, when I first came back to Australia, I, I spent some time in Hong Kong and then I came back to Australia and I worked for a company called Kane Constructions and Peter was one of the directors of Kane Construction, so he interviewed me. And at the time, you know, after about sort of 20 years or whatever, when when we decide, or when I decided to set up the business, Peter was the obvious partner and, you know, he really helped me. It, it, was, it was fundamental in doing that, basically. Yeah. When we had our pre-interview, one of the things that really sort of stuck out to me was the fact that, you know, as soon as you started the business, you took on international work or pretty much immediately. Um, for most contractors, this really never crosses their mind. You know, there's, a, there's enough to get your head around, let alone throwing in things like different languages, different time zones, different currencies. Walk us through that process. Why did you decide to just straight out of the gate go internationally? I think the reality of it is, is that that was where my interest lay. And so, um, you know, I'd done international work previously and it certainly wasn't a financially based decision, you know, that, that we could make more money doing work offshore. It, it was more about following your interests and following what you thought was a good thing to do with your life for the next 20 years or whatever. Yeah, there was strategically, I understand why many people would say it's, you know, crazy. Why would you head off overseas and, and do work when, and I always say to, I, I give some talks to people who go to work with the Asian Development Bank, who's one of our big customers and, and the World Bank. And, you know, if you can't do it well in Australia, then you shouldn't be looking offshore. But uh, I suppose that we had a background of doing stuff that hopefully we did reasonably well in Australia and, and it was time to head offshore when I was running my own company. So what was the, the benefit of, of going overseas? Was it just purely based out of your interest? That's just where you wanted to go or was there... I think, it, I think it's out of your interest, but it's also... You know, Australians travel a hell of a lot offshore and I think we're one of the most travelled populations in the world um, and there are some fantastic places on our doorstep in the Pacific and in Asia and I suppose it comes back again to interest is that if you're going to spend the rest of your life or you're going to ask other people who have like-minded interests to spend the rest of their life uh, working, why not include some opportunities to see those cultures and to mix with those cultures and to really hopefully bring some skills out there, but you get more out of it than you put into it, I think. So. Yeah. So speaking of cultures, what are some of the biggest challenges of working with different cultures and different belief systems? I mean, there's, there's got to be some pretty unique challenges around that when you go on to work in different places. Oh, there is, I think. You know, it's um, too many times I hear people who work in allied positions with me or you know work for me who have the view that everywhere is almost the same every culture is different even in australia you know queensland's different yeah. to victoria so the difference between bali and tuvalu is uh, completely different and if you if you go to it with a mindset that it's all the same and all we're doing is we're doing some infrastructure in a different place uh it can lead to catastrophic failures in in terms of people just getting the the messages wrong so can you give us an example of how you've actually had to change the way you deal with people just based on, you know, how you get the best out of somebody in Australia versus how you get the best out of somebody in Vanuatu? Like, what are those differences? Like, this, Australians 
on an Australian building site or on a you know a construction site are extraordinarily open and prepared to express their own opinions and and differences and to have quite a a robust discussion about what they want and what they need and that's you know comes right down to clients it comes down to suppliers subbies uh no, everyone's everyone's quite happy to stick their hand up and say what they think. Whereas if you go into a Pacific island like uh, Vanuatu or Fiji or whatever, it has much more of a happy face on the exterior. But if you're not listening for the signals, you know, I, I, I always say to our people, how many times today, you know, in the Pacific context, did someone tell you no? Because the reality of it is if they're not telling you no twice a day and just agreeing with you that doesn't necessarily mean the message is you know is two-way and that there's a real communication about the things that need to be done and that's you know it's the same thing i suppose i learned that early in hong kong is the whole face issue of that that people don't like to admit they're wrong or they don't like to disagree and therefore you know you can walk away from a conversation thinking that you've got everything settled and it's right to go and uh that the next three weeks will tell you that that conversation was simply a one-way conversation of you telling them how you'd like it to go. Yeah. So, what have you actually done to try and build that trust with people in in different countries to to get that honest conversation going? I think the issue is to listen and to create space where it's often not necessary in the Australian context because people will jump in, but in a Pacific context or in a um, you know, many Asian cultures you need to create space and you need to frame a question so that the answer is not necessarily a no. It's about opening that dialogue up much, much slower. I always ask our staff to, to stop and say, what do you think about that? And to almost reinforce it back to you twice or three times before you believe there's an agreement in place. Yeah. So tell us about some of the other big challenges that crop up when you're starting to take on work internationally. Obviously, the communication with different cultures is one, but what else is there? Oh, look, there's, there's a whole lot. Like commercially, uh, exchange rates. You yeah. know, the, one of the first jobs I did was in a little place called Ponape, which works on the US currency, and we quoted it in Australian dollars, obviously. It went from uh, about 75 cents to a dollar during the course of the contract. Okay. And we were foolishly bumbling along thinking that we didn't need to hedge. And we got out with our pants still on. But the reality of it is that exchange rates can be killers. Um, yep. Local laws, local registrations are important. Work permits, you know, insurance. Uh, we've had a number of people, you know, medevaced out of different places and making sure that you can provide for your staff if there is an issue. There's a whole lot of issues in terms of working offshore that you just don't have to worry about here. Yeah. So what about logistically? Like, uh, obviously, with the pandemic and all that's gone on with supply chains around the world, how's that affected you guys having to work in different countries and, you know, manage everything? Yeah, massively. And I think we were lucky and we'd done probably 15 years of work, you know, at least out in the Pacific before we really got hit with the pandemic. And therefore, we understood supply chains and we understood volumetric measurements of building materials and things like that and how many containers is that going to be and what's the you know what's the lead time normally on that but we saw from late 2019 through to about the end of 2021 we saw container prices uh which are a massive part of the of the estimating going from about three and a half thousand dollars into pacific ports to in some cases nine and a half to eleven thousand dollars you know a, a unit so you can imagine how that throws the cat amongst the pigeons in terms of cost impact. But it also, we were seeing 
where we would book slots or have open slots on ships to, to ship steel or ship any other type of building materials. And in the middle of 2020, you know, those slots being 12 to 14 weeks away, even if you had the materials at the dock, whereas we used to be able to get it to the dock and catch the next ship, almost like a roll on, roll off. But yeah. 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 So where do, in, in your opinion, where do most companies fail when they look at taking on international work? There are a few. That, that the biggest ones would probably be staff selection. You know, people who are necessarily very good in an Australian context at keeping the project ticking over to running a safe work site and managing subcontractors. Uh, if you take a person like that but don't consider the cultural uh, you know, how they'll fit culturally and how they'll adapt to the settings that they're put into, then we've seen some, even in, amongst our own people, some relatively good failures that we wouldn't have expected, I suppose. You get better at picking people, but some who present well at the start um, simply can't, because there's isolation, there's, you know, you don't have your, your traditional family networks around you. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you normally go about staffing a project overseas? Is it that you send a manager or a supervisor that's from Australia that sort of gets your way of doing things and then select the rest locals? Or how does that sort of work? It, it's pretty much contextual to the project. But what we like to do is to have at least one of our key staff who've been with us for a long period of time and work their way up through other projects who, are, as you say, you know, it's, it's more about understanding what your key drivers are and understanding the level of autonomy they can take and the level of backing they'll get from us and then building that team, preferably with national staff. There are places in the Pacific where it's necessary to have a higher level of uh, expat support than we would like. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we, we typically see on our projects at least a sort of 90% representation of national workforce across the Pacific. So staffing and people are one of the challenges. What are some of the others for, for companies looking at doing this? We've seen uh, companies come and go into our space, I suppose. And the biggest one is where there's just a lack of understanding in relation to that, you know, that logistics chain. Yeah. Um, and how much effort that takes to get things to, to ground. The actual cost of keeping, you know, people in remote places and flying them back and forth can be an enormous shock to people when they first, you know, we often get comments, you know, we'll put a price in it. How can it possibly cost you that much? And then you go through the detail and effectively it is just expensive to fly people back and forth and to give them appropriate breaks and to provide the necessary insurance and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, quality is also maintaining quality. There is often a major temptation to use, uh, you know, untested suppliers into these places because they're a bit cheaper or suppliers from other places in the world. Um, and the quality implications of using a supplier who's untested, by the time it gets to, say, Tuvalu or to uh, Kiribati or whatever, it's not just a replacement of the product. It's a sort of six-month setback in, yeah. the, in the overall program. Yeah. So, yeah, they're interesting ones. And I would imagine oftentimes these subcontractors or people that you're working with that are untested are, are generally cheaper, but they're cheaper because they really don't understand what's involved with this international work, I would imagine. That's it. And, and that's, you know, I don't want to be an, have, make it an unfair characterisation because there are others who are just so good at their job in other parts of the world that, that they can produce a, a really good product for far less than, say, some of our Australian suppliers might be able to. But um, 
but we're not surprised when there are other when there are other failures, I suppose. So what specific things should a company really be careful of if they're in Australia at the minute and they're doing really well and they're thinking, right, this this could be an idea down the road. Yeah. What are they really got to be careful of when they start venturing into this type of international work or starting to look for international work? Oh, look, I always say, and you know, we've done it uh, right since you know we set the company up. Is is uh, we've partnered with with people who know the area, mm-hmm. you know, rather than to wander in and say off we go, you know, with a with a, a new balloon and a new idea. Yeah. Um, we partner with national companies or with others who bring a, a specialised product to the to the market. And you know that's that's one way of allaying risk and to understanding the markets. But, but if you're new to it, how do you actually go about developing those relationships with people in these locations? Well, I think, I think you got to this, and this is the whole thing. If you're not good at doing something in Australia, mm. then then don't even think about taking it offshore. Mm-hmm. But if you have a special offering and you think you're pretty good at your, you know, the processes are pretty robust and you've got some really good people and and have an interest in that, then that's what you are offering to a joint venture partner, effectively. Yeah. yeah? I had a question in my head then, but now I've, now I've forgotten it. But I'll just go. You know, at the moment we're doing a joint venture on a in Kiribati to build a new desalination plant out in the middle of Kiribati. And Kiribati is this tiny, beautiful little country in the middle of the Pacific uh, with a massive water. Uh, and um, it's an Australian company called Osmoflow, okay. and they are really good at building desalination plants yeah. you know so we've joint ventured with them you know we bring the international expertise they bring their water expertise and it's two two companies trying to bring a complementary offering to a to a little place in the middle of nowhere so yeah yeah, yeah. and i suppose there'd be, there'd be a lot of satisfaction in providing that work because obviously that infrastructure that little island really really needs oh you know kiribati is going through an enormous water shortage at the moment both due to climate change and to population uh pressures i suppose and so in a year's time when that's commissioned that will make a huge difference to that country and that's you know that's when i say part of the interest part of the interest is that um often projects in australia take you know say a school building takes us a good school that's say sitting at 85 percent with its facilities to 100 percent yep Whereas I would say, you know, a project in Kiribati on, on water or uh, something in the Solomon Islands on markets or whatever, it, it takes an area that is desperately crying out and has a, has a need, you know, it's sitting down at 20% of its needs fulfilled uh, to that sort of 85%. So yeah, yeah. I think personally, there's an opportunity to create a far bigger product, uh, sorry, far greater impact by doing the stuff that we do. Yeah, absolutely sounds like it. I don't know a lot about some of these islands, but it's good to hear about, you know, what you guys are working on there. So for everybody that's listening to this and they may be thinking or or looking to explore international work, what's step number one that they should take in that process of looking at taking this on? What's step number one that they could do today to start doing something like this? Evaluate what strengths you really have that might transfer to another location, and that's not just to Asia or whatever. There are there are companies within Asia that are looking for capital. You know, even if you have capital and and processes, then you can join with good companies in Asia um, that are looking for you know some investment and the stimulus, and so not not stretch yourself too far, but put your toe in the water by putting a bit of money out there to see if it if it can work. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say is step number two? What could they do after that? Find good people who are interested in doing it. In in actually go, going and physically doing the work? Yeah, and, yeah, because that's if you don't have that, then 
as much as you want to do stuff offshore, then then you yeah. are. To me, that sounds like 90% of the battle because I know of contractors that have people that don't want to work an hour or two away from home, let alone internationally. That, that, no, that's and that's a, and I understand that. That's exactly it. Is that when you, there are certain people at different stages, and, and we look at the stages of life that our people are at. You know, like the when you've got young kids that are just starting out in school, or you've got you know secondary school kids that are at school, and you want to be near them, then it's no point trying to dangle the carrot to say, look, can you head off overseas and do these things? The issue is that um, really good people who've lived their life. Uh, as you know, carpentry supervisors or as uh, running their own little building companies or whatever, who are at that stage of 50, their kids have moved out of home and they're looking for that ability to use their skills and do a bit of teaching. Yeah. They are fantastic you know, employers. And the, the other end of it, the scale is the sort of 25-year-old uh, men and women who have some skills to offer because they've been in, you know, larger engineering companies or larger uh, capital works delivery, but they want to do five years of looking around before they settle down and go through that sort of 30 to 45 period where we're all raising kids and doing what we need to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you today that you think would benefit the audience? Uh, I suppose the world's going into a different phase at the moment where uh, people are, are more interested in what they get out of life than what their work producers if you like yep. and so um i'm really interested in how that risk return um sort of uh, balance works for venturing offshore um and then and, and offering opportunity to lots of people to do what i do i suppose yeah. so yeah I, I don't know it's a quest it's not a question i suppose yeah yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting how do you see it playing out what's your view on it well, I think, you know, you're seeing the federal government at the moment, you know, doing a full re-engagement with the Pacific and, and across the, there being a far bigger geopolitical um, action being taken at the moment to re-engage with the world and not just run our own little race and ignore what the rest of the world really says about us. And, and I think that's a good thing. And so, you know, construction companies venturing offshore is, is a part of that engagement. And I think there's a... Um, that we have plenty to offer. We've got really good educational facilities and, and many of our people are really quite adaptable and good decision makers under uncertain times. And so I think there's really good opportunities out there at the moment yeah. for, for construction companies. But risk is a big issue for boards. You know, like boards will find it very difficult to take the risk that we take yeah. because, you know, in a board of eight or nine, it's difficult to get consensus. Yeah. Um this has been great fun. I've really enjoyed the chat, but I'm going to start winding things up now. And I'd just like to ask you, if you had one piece of advice for somebody running a business, it doesn't have to be particularly to do with working internationally, but what's one lesson that you've learnt um, that you'd like to, to pass on to somebody that's running a business? Words of wisdom. I, I think don't take the pen out and cross out the opportunity before you really consider the things that might come out of it. You know, like I've had a, a really good business relationship with the other one of our businesses and you know, we've been more than happy to leave something open and think about it before you cross it off. You know, I think there's there's a lot of opportunity that's lost by just saying that doesn't fit or it's not a um, thing. So that would be my first thing. It's just have a go. Yeah, for sure. That's the, that's the Aussie way, isn't it? Have a go. Yeah. This has been great fun. How can people connect with you online, learn more about, um, you know, what Reeves and Vika are up to and just connect with you generally online? 
uh, my <laughs> our communications person would say I'm terrible at this. But <laughs> yeah, there's a website there. It's got contact details, and I'm more than happy to talk to anyone who wants to have a talk about it or to you know engage in some emails back and forth. You'll find our contact details on the Reeves and Vico website, and uh, yeah. So is the company and yourself, you on LinkedIn, anything like that? Yeah, we are. Yeah, I think we are. Yeah. We'll link to both the, the, the Reason Vico website and the Reason Vico uh, LinkedIn page in the show notes as well for anybody that if they want to want to have a look at that. But again, I had good fun chatting with you. I really appreciate your time. Um, we'll catch you later. Thanks, Jordan. Really appreciate what you're doing. You've been listening to the Crushing It in Construction podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review. If you'd like to learn more about employer branding and recruitment marketing strategy, feel free to visit our website at moonshotmedia.com.au or reach out to me directly at jaskinner at moonshotmedia.com.au. Thanks again for listening, and I'll speak to you in the next episode of Crushing It in Construction.